Tom Darnell. Tom has been here a few times in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, some of you may know him already. If you don't, or maybe you've forgotten, just want to remind you, he currently is serving on the staff at Covenant Presbyterian Church as one of the assistant pastors there. He is also the what we call here in the Nashville Presbytery the pastor of spiritual formation, meaning that uh, he is your counselor, comforter, keeper. No, um, he, he, he is uh, in many ways a, a good friend, a trusted advisor, a shoulder to lean into, an ear when you need it uh, among the pastors in our presbytery. Uh, he's got a few years under his belt in terms of experience, and so the man knows of what he speaks. Uh, he works very closely with the shepherding committee, of which I'm uh, the co-chair, and so we get to see each other fairly regularly, although sadly those circumstances are not all that fun sometimes. So, Tom, it's really good to hear, uh, have you here, and uh, welcome. Thank you, Richard. Well, as we near the Advent season, which uh, begins next Sunday, it might be good for us, healthy for us, to remember why Jesus took on flesh and dwell among us on this earth. We hear this from the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil and the bondage that he has in the lives of those who belong to him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welsh medical doctor who became a minister preacher of great renown until his death in 1981, wrote in his book, Warfare, this. He writes, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We are ignorant of this great objective fact, the being, the existence of the devil, and his fiery darts. That's why this morning I wish to address uh, and bring our attention to Ephesians 6 to talk about spiritual warfare. We're going to look at two simple points, uh, the adversaries we are that are against us, and the stand we are to take. This is from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Let me read that passage, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Paul writes this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. Join your hearts and mine as I lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you took on flesh to destroy the works of the devil and to free us from his enslavement. We, we gratefully, joyfully thank you for that ministry in our lives. It's unbelievable what it took that those things might become a truth for us and all your people. Lord, we pray that as we're on the eve of the Advent season, a week from today, that you would use these truths now that we look at to remind us of why Jesus did come. And Lord, to remind us of the battle that we do fight and to remind us of the resources we have in Christ to stand firm uh, in that day against that evil. So Lord, Give us hearts now clear from the anxieties of last week or the concerns of next week. We pray that right now in this uh, time, these next several minutes, you would have your way with our hearts. Capture us by your spirit with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's then first look at the adversaries who are against us. It's very clear in this passage that Paul is concerned about spiritual conflict that Christians face that he says, on that evil day. That evil day is any day that you and I face the temptations of Satan uh, of turning from God to sin. That is that evil day. So what is this adversary that wants to bring that evil to us on that day? Let's look at what that adversary is like. First of all, the adversary is deceitful. Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The word schemes here is a word for trickery. The inclination of Christians is to think of our spiritual adversary, the devil, as overtly ugly, and that's not altogether wrong. But we also must understand that our devil, our evil one, is also deceptively beautiful. 2 Corinthians 11 says, as Paul writes, even Satan, Paul writes, disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Cornelius Plantinga, in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, says it this way. He says, to do its worst, evil needs to look its best. Evil has to spend a lot of time on makeup. Vices have to masquerade as virtues, lust as love, envy as righteous indignation, domestic tyranny as parental concern. In C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters, Uncle Screwtape uh, writes to his nephew, Wormwood, who's being trained as a junior devil, and this is one of the advices he gives him in this book, a book well worth the read of every believer. 
Screwtape says to his nephew Wormwood, My dear Wormwood, I'm amazed that you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the Christian in ignorance of our existence. The correct question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the Master himself, Satan. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. And persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. He's deceitful. And many times he's beautifully deceitful. He's not just deceitful, our enemy is many. Verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says to make clear to us that our primary enemy is not with flesh and blood. Is against those things I just read. They're all hard to understand exactly what he's talking about, but it's clear that our enemy, our adversary, is many. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our adversary is many. Maybe most importantly, it's good to understand that our adversary is evil. To stress that fact, Paul writes that in this passage three times. Verse 12, verse 13, verse 16, that our adversary is evil. Jesus was clear in his teaching how evil our adversary is. Listen to what he says in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 44. Speaking to his enemies at that time, he says to them that you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Dear friend, that is evil. He has nothing to do with the truth. Nothing. He is a father of all lies. That is our evil adversary. In John 10.10, he says this. Jesus writes, or says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Our enemies come to steal and to kill and to destroy. To take life away. To rob us of that which is good. They have no good intentions whatsoever. They are evil. Peter paints a slightly different uh, hue of this evil enemy. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's a roaring lion, our enemies are. All they desire to do is to devour. They do not want to be friends. They do not want to have anything good to do for the good of our own betterment and anything. They take away. They rob. 
They seek our life. If we don't properly understand the truth that our enemy is deceitful and many and evil, then we'll grossly underestimate our ability on our own to stand against that enemy. We need to understand. We need to adhere to the truth. We need to be touched by the fact that our adversary is deceitful and many and evil. Now, I would imagine that some of you, in hearing that, or even the passages we read today, particularly the one about the demoniac, may say, well, that was then, but this is now. Are those things then true now? And many would say, I don't think those things are true now. I don't think there are demons manifested in people in experiences that we call demon possession. It's hard to understand an enemy that I can't see and whose evidence is like a demon-possessed person that is not uh, in our culture with any sort of frequency at all. How can I believe the truth of what the scriptures teach about the devil? Well, I would say that a lot of what I knew until some years ago was very theoretical about the devil and the evil one until an experience that I had with a demon-possessed girl. Her name was Birdie. I was an elder in the church and was asked by the pastor to join another uh, person in our church and to join the two of us, an experienced missionary from Africa, to meet with a girl that had come to his attention uh, that she was demon-possessed. Would I and this individual and this missionary meet with her? I, I had no experience in being in the presence of a person who was supposedly demon-possessed. I was just asked to be there to be a support to the missionary and to pray for him uh, as he attempted to minister to Bertie. We met in the uh, basement of the church facility. We were down in the Sunday school room, and uh, we gathered some folding chairs around uh, Bertie, and the missionary began to ask her several questions about her and her life. As he talked with her, Bertie would answer, uh, struggled a little bit. She was somewhat nervous. Uh, and then he asked her this question. He said, Bertie, what do you think of Jesus Christ? He had not mentioned Christ until then. When he said that, Bertie contorted. Her head went down and she did this. And then she looked up and her conscience was totally different. And she went, <laughs> and she knocked the Bible out of the missionary's hand and ran out of the room. Not what I expected. <laughs> it was frightening, to be honest. It was really frightening. We uh, were able to make contact with her again, and she agreed to meet again. Uh, and we bought, brought a lot of reinforcements to meet with her. We had a psychiatrist come to be medically available for any needs that might be manifested with her. We brought other saints, brought a counselor. We had a team of people that met with Bertie. During that time with her and that evening uh, meeting with her, uh, we uh, recognized by their own admission 14 different demons in her. They named themselves. We many times uh, saw her just like you would read in the New Testament. She would froth at the mouth. She would writhe on the ground like a snake. She tried to throw herself out of the second story window to uh, suicide. She would often try to disrobe, and we would keep her clothes on, but you could see that she lifted up her shirt that she had scars all over her stomach. And she told us during that time it was because the 
the uh, she called them monsters, would tell her to cut herself. Now she tried to choke herself with a folding chair. Uh, it was ugly. It was dehumanizing, as you might expect from the evil one. I came to understand during that time that as ugly as Satan manifested himself and these demons that were in her, so God's glory was much greater. That we had nothing to fear in Christ. We came to learn from her that she began to experience these uh, demonic sorts of influences as a young girl when she would sacrifice animals uh, in the forest with some friends. She messed with Ouija boards a lot. And then the apex came when she was uh, in a, the hospital uh, and a friend who was a demon believer and demon worshiper came to visit her and told her that if you would give your life to Satan, he would heal you. And so she did, and she was healed. But when that happened, she became his. And that's the whole life that she knew was under demon possession. On the telephone with me two or three times, uh, one time she fell under possession on the telephone. When that happened, uh, the dog in the background began to howl. Another time on the telephone with me, when she fell under possession, two voices came out of her mouth at the same time. One was a male voice out of one woman. It was a humbling time, but it was also an exalted time. The truth that Jesus, who was in us, is greater than he who was in the world. But it made clear that Satan and his enemies are at work. They are existing in the world today. That they are not absent in the church today. But I want to tell you this, not because I want you to fear that you're going to become demon-possessed. I don't think that can happen to a believer. But I don't want you to underestimate his tactics and power and his authority. They are immense. We are in a spiritual warfare. Our adversary is against us. So the adversary who is against us, and then secondly, the, the stand we are to take. After Paul teaches us what this an adversary is like, he then commands us to stand. He says it five times, to stand. It's the main verb in this whole passage, to stand. So it's a preposition that has direction, uh, as we would say. Uh, it means to stand against something. It doesn't mean just to stand up, but it means to stand against that which is against us. Whatever is advancing against you, you are to stand firm and not move. That's the image this word is to have with us when we read it. It's talking about standing against something that is very near us and is trying to have impact and influence upon you, we are to stand. So the battle we fight is then like a hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's not launching missiles and grenades and using long-range firepower with our enemy. Uh, we are talking about face-to-face -face combat. That's what we're talking about. So he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, and this word wrestle uh, is the... A picture of a battle we fight, uh, of up-close sort of adversary, like I've already mentioned. It is a hand-to-hand -hand combat. This is a in-your-face, smell-your-breath enemy that you have. They are in your face. And Paul tells us to stand. 
I know for me sometimes walking alone in dark places at night, I fear that kind of adversary jumping out of some sort of unknown place and getting in my face with their evil purposes. you ever think about that, or is it just me? So, how are we to stand? Well, first of all, we're to understand the mighty power of putting on God's full armor. Uh, this is not the main point of what I'm about to say. I'll pause on the last point, the sword of the Spirit, but just really quickly. We're to put on the belt of truth. Uh, it is oftentimes used in the Bible as uh, a, uh, a spirit of sincerity. It's the lack of pretense. Uh, we are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. We have been made righteous in Christ, and I stand before any enemy, knowing that in Christ I am righteous before God. I bear Christ's righteousness. We're to put on the gospel of peace. There's a readiness to share the gospel. We're to put on the shield of faith. We lay hold of the promises of God as we fight our enemy. We put on the helmet of salvation. It's the confident expectation on the day of Christ, I will be Saved. There is a full salvation for those who belong to him. And then I put on the sword of the Spirit. Let me pause on this word just a bit. The uh, Greek word here is not pointing to a long sword that would be used by some Roman soldiers. It's more like a dagger. It's the short sword. It's a very short weapon that Paul is referring to here. And he uh, said that we are to put on the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, a lot of times, the Greek word you have heard of and may know that says what the word is in Greek is the word logos. Uh, that is not the word here. It's not logos. Uh, it's the word uh, rema, uh, which is talking about specific portions of God's word. Not the word as a whole, but specific portions of the word of God is what this is referring to. That makes you think, I hope, about Jesus Christ, who when he's tempted by the evil one in the wilderness, about three specific temptations, Jesus Christ, Christ quotes three specific verses to battle against the evil one in his temptation in the desert. That's the picture that Paul is painting. That we take particular scripture, we apply to particular circumstances, and with that dagger of God's word, we fight the enemy. That's in our face. So the idea then is that we need to have in our mind that word that we use to fight the temptations and the attacks and the schemes and the evil purposes of the evil one. We need to have that word in our mind and heart to use it as a dagger. Do we not? Certainly we do. We need the word. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters again says this uh, to Wormwood. Uh, or uh, to, uh, to his nephew Wormwood, he says, it's funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. If they can succeed in making us ignorant of or not grasping the truths of God's word, we lack the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We are in trouble. So these words that we uh, have on uh, understanding these words of putting on, having put on the armor of God, uh, is in relationship to the word stand. So the word putting on is now followed by the word praying. Uh, whenever a word ends in an ing, 
if you remember some of your English, uh, is oftentimes a dead giveaway that it's a participle. A participle modifies the main verb. We've already said the main verb is stand. So we have looked at one of the ways that this is modified by having put on that armor. But the next one is praying. We are to be praying. It makes standing possible. It makes standing possible. But praying is not an additional piece of armor here. It is what we do as we put each piece of the armor on. We are in a praying spirit at all times. We might ask, well, what difference does prayer make? Uh, can I really change God's mind, or can I make God do something he doesn't want to do uh, by my praying? Why should I pray? After all, you might quote Psalm 115.3. It says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So let's just let God do what he pleases. Why pray? Well, here's why we pray. is because God is not only sovereign in the end of what he does. God is sovereign also over the means. That God designs prayer as a means to accomplish his will. And so we pray because God, in a way that we can't fully understand, honors the power of prayer to accomplish his good purposes. So we pray. So I don't pray to change God's mind. I pray that God's will be done in this attack that I'm currently uh, suffering. We know this is true, that God answers prayer that's according to his will by what John says in 1 John. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the requests made of him. So we are then told to be praying in the Spirit. Verse 18, praying in the Spirit, Paul says. Paul has already made much about the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. In Ephesians 4.30, two chapters before, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We are instead, in verse 18 of chapter 5, to do this. Another passage about the Spirit in Ephesians. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul is saying, don't be inebriated with wine. Be inebriated by the Holy Spirit. Don't be under the control of the influence of alcohol be under the control and influence of the Holy Spirit. If we will do that, then we can learn and will walk in the Spirit. God's Spirit will lead us. He will guide us. We need to listen to the nudgings of the Spirit of God to pray. When he nudges, we pray. So he says, pray at all times. Uh, that doesn't leave out many times. Pray at all times, Paul says says, we are in a praying mode at all times, not just when things are going bad for us. When the 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, we should pray when we are in a praying mood, for it would be, a sin, it would be sinful to neglect so fair an opportunity. We should pray when we're not in a praying mood, for it would be dangerous to remain in so unhealthy a condition. We pray at all times. We pray all prayers, verse 18, praying with all prayer and supplication. 
You might know the, the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, and we refer to prayer, A being adoration, C being confession, C, uh, T being thanksgiving, and S being supplication. It's a good guide to how we pray. We adore, we confess, we thank, we supplicate. We are used to called to use all prayers by Paul. We're also to pray with all perseverance. Paul says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. What causes us to lose our alertness and commitment to prayer? Well, a lot of things, right? Busyness, mental weariness, physical fatigue, minimal suffering or difficulty, defeat. Uh, we have a lot of reasons why we may not pray. We might be disappointed with God, so therefore we stop praying. I would urge us to, uh, in order to keep alert in all perseverance, is to learn how to keep prayers fresh. That the way you pray, change the way you pray. Change, there are lots of ways to pray. Change the way you pray. Change where you pray. Change what you pray. Change the organization of your prayers. Change it. Variety awakens learning. It helps us. Then fourth, pray with all for all the brothers and sisters. He says, verse 18, making supplication for all the saints. So when we are walking in the Spirit, we are to, when we think of a need, pray. When you're told of a need, pray. When the need is significant, remember to often pray. When the needs are many, organize them so you can be faithful to pray. Pray for all, all your brothers and sisters. If we're walking in the Spirit, God often puts a person in this congregation on your mind by His Spirit. If we then pray in the Spirit, what should we do? We should, I would urge you, pray for that brother or sister. You might be burdened about a brother or sister for reasons you can't explain. I would urge you to call that brother and sister and just talk with them. Pray for them over the phone. You will leave worship services like this and you can tell that some people are distressed. Don't just notice that. Go up to them and say, "Are you? you seem really stressed. Are you, can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? When you're with someone and they say, please pray for me. Would you pray for me? And they request that. Oftentimes you say, we sure will. And we walk away and we don't pray for them. Ever do that? I've done that a lot. I've tried to learn to say, okay, I'd love to pray for you. Can we pray for you right now? Let's pray. I'll pray for you. Because I'm just I'll be honest, I'm afraid I'll forget. Let's, let's pray now. Pray for all the brothers and sisters. One of the years I was pastoring in Williamsburg, Virginia, we had a motto one year, which was to pray about all things at all times with all people, all for his glory. Pray about all things at all times with all people, all for his glory. It's a good model to keep for all of us as we walk through this life. One of the experiences we had with our own son in terms of us praying when he was a young boy, he had night terrors. And when he had night terrors, they were, they were horrible. They were absolutely horrible. Uh, we would walk into his room and he'd be on top of his dresser, couched down with sheer fright on his face, eyes wide open and we couldn't communicate with him. Couldn't talk to him. He wouldn't acknowledge us. He was frightened out of his mind. We went to seminary uh, and these night terrors continued. And uh, 
he would refer to these later uh, in our times when talking about post-event the next morning, if he remembered what happened last night. And he'd refer to these things that were menacing him as monsters. Do you remember what Bertie called her demons? Monsters. This was all the same time frame. We're a little slow in the uptake, and we thought, I don't think this is just, just night terrors. I think our son is being oppressed by those monsters that oppressed Bertie. This is no coincidence that he calls them monsters and she calls her demons monsters. So we began to realize that we need to pray for our son. So we'd go into his room when he was asleep and he slept very, very soundly. We would bow, get on our knees, lay our hands on him and pray for him. We did that until the burden left of praying for our son. And the monster stopped tormenting him and the night terrors ended. Because we prayed. We prayed. We are to be a people in fighting our enemy that pray in the Spirit. The adversary who is against us, the stand we are to take. In the mid-1600s, a Puritan pastor named William Gurnall wrote 1,200 pages on explaining these 11 verses I've just summarized. I decided you probably wouldn't want me to read that book to you this morning. His book is called The Christian in Complete Armor, A Treatise of the Satan's War Against the Devil. He spends one-fourth of his book, 300 pages, explaining the three verses on prayer. Here are just two sentences Gurnall wrote regarding prayer. And though the saint is the speaker, the author of prayer is God. We see that both the strength to pray and the power itself are from God. God uses that prayer by his divine and providential purposes to accomplish his will. He has committed himself to that. If that were not the case, why would Jesus pray? Why is Jesus still praying? Scriptures teach us the Holy Spirit is praying for us. If the Son of God and the Spirit of God are called to pray and need to pray, do we need less? <laughs> Should we not join them in this battle by being people of prayer? I pray that Christ Presbyterian becomes more and more known as a church where people pray. Because where people pray, God's at work. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have defeated the evil one on the cross. And yet, Lord, before we see you in that heavenly place, we battle that enemy. We thank you that you've given us all resources by putting on the armor and by praying to stand. Remind us today, Lord, of what we're standing against. And Lord, as you lead us by your spirit, teach us to pray. Bring brothers and sisters to mind in this body we're to pray for. Transform us to be people of prayer. Prayer is the language of dependence. Lord, make us more dependent on you. In Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing in the service now, in the giving of our tithes and our offerings.